In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Wanted to start off the show by basically saying, I don't know. And um, what I'm referring to is, when we're looking at the situation in the Middle East, I have to admit, I don't know what's the right thing to do, how we're going to make things better, um, and really also what's the truth in all this. It's hard to even find the truth. We hear lots of different things, but the reason why I'm saying I don't know is that as is the case with most things that are discussed on social media, everyone seems to know exactly what's happening and exactly who's at fault, who's good and who's bad, and exactly how to get out of it uh, and makes it seem very simple. And this is something that we see with almost every topic that's discussed. Um, It's that everyone has to have an opinion on it and a very clear opinion. And it's also because the more... Um, decisive you are and the more aggressive you are and even uh, attacking of a group you are attacking of a side you are the more likely it is that those types of posts will be seen by more people shared by more people because they get shared by both sides if someone says something and you love it and you think it's so much on your team side and making a point so strongly that you agree with you're likely going to share it, like it, do all of those things. But also if someone posts something you think it's outrageous because it's so on the other side and you think it shows how stupid the other side is or how biased they are, you're also likely to show it too. So unfortunately, um, these, you know, social media can't create something new, but it can definitely amplify and exaggerate human tendencies that are already there. We have tendencies towards, because we have anxiety about unknowns, when someone is certain and makes us feel good and we like that we have anxieties about not knowing if we are right or wrong and so we like when someone very clearly tells us that we are right or tells us what to think and that they know the truth because then we feel that it will it does quell that anxiety or that uncertainty that we have and we 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 feel good about that so uh, when I'm looking at what's being posted that is just a common theme that people think they have everything all figured out they have all the answers uh, and they know exactly how to get out of something that's so complicated and complex that I think no one knows um, how to get out of it or it's not going to be anything that's going to be simple especially if we look at long-term solutions Uh, just some thoughts I will share about what not necessarily that I know but that uh, thoughts I have feelings opinions about what's going on one is that we are unfortunately seeing that because of how divisive it is, it's leading to increases in hate for all sorts of people. Um, definitely we're seeing rises in anti-Semitism, rises in Islamophobia or anti, 
uh, Muslim or Middle Eastern people and individuals. And this is really heartbreaking and sad to see. You know, I've heard people from both sides saying even being in places like Los Angeles, even they can feel unsafe at times because they, they feel like there's a focus and a, um, the hatred, it feels more open or comfortable. People are expressing it often. What we see is things that are lurking under the surface, but something makes it or makes people feel more okay or makes it come out. And so we're definitely seeing that this hate towards different individuals um, increasing. And I think that's really disheartening. And this, it definitely follows from some of the rhetoric and the ways people talk about things, because when we make things so black and white that one side is right and one side is wrong and it's complete and absolute, uh, then it feels like, well, then we can uh, do whatever we want. We are righteous. We are right. We can do whatever we want to the people who are on the other side, let alone, which I'll talk about um, when we say the other side, just because someone is Jewish doesn't mean that they are in any way responsible for any of the actions of uh, Israel, just like if someone is Muslim or Middle Eastern, they are no way responsible for anything that Hamas uh, has done. Um, but still, we, we do feel this righteousness. I know I'm right. I know the other side is completely wrong. And because of that, I, I can do whatever I want. Not only that, uh, dehumanization happens. And I've seen posts from verbal posts of calling people animals or savages or um, vermin um, to drawings and, you know, cartoons showing individuals of one group as uh, bugs, vermin, things of that sort. And we do see always before any type of um, even just war, but even more extreme things like genocide, uh, dehumanization is always a part of the playbook or part of the process where people who are on the other side are looked at as less than human. Um, and so because of that, it can feel that their lives are not as uh, important. They don't matter as much or not as significant. So even if they are killed, it's okay. Well, what's maybe they deserve to die or they're not even human or have value. And so this is related to this theme of rising hate for certain individuals. And as I, I touched on just briefly before to associate certain people, even if they support um, the group, but regardless of that, just because they are, let's say, Jewish or because they are Muslim or Middle Eastern, uh, with the actions of other, uh, a certain group, a government or certain individuals uh, is completely uh, obnoxious and something that we do, uh, again, to feel some sense of peace or, okay, I'm right and these people are wrong and I can attack people from that group. I'm justified in hurting them in whatever way I feel like I want to, or to get this hate out that I now have. Now, of course, very real things are happening. People's um, People have been killed. And so when I say we're taking it out on others as if nothing is going on, something very real is going on. But something else that is happening and something we have to always be mindful of in these kinds of situations is how we feel about a situation and how we feel about groups of people, individuals also, but others in general, including individuals or at the group level, is not just a reflection of them. It's very much a reflection of ourselves as well. And so we often, because we have completely detached ourselves from our own 
bad sides or we don't acknowledge the badness within us, anger, rage, um, aggression that we might have, judgments, prejudices that we might have, we are very good at projecting these uh, onto other people. So they are the ones who are all bad or they're the ones who um, are hurting other people. I'm trying to remember which book I read. I don't know if it was by Jung recently, a book that was related to this theme. I'm actually trying to look for it and I'm not able to find it at this time. Or maybe it was um, On Disobedience by Eric Fromm. I can't remember now. But nonetheless, this theme is a very common one where we can put the parts of ourselves, we project the parts we don't like of ourselves onto others. It also is related to things like cancel culture, where because we ourselves know or we unconsciously know we have some uh, racist beliefs or sexist beliefs, or we might have some of those types of thoughts or feelings, and we don't want to be that, we project it onto other people. And so if we see even an inkling of what might be something uh, racist or sexist or prejudiced in some way, we attack them, we eviscerate them, and we feel so good doing it and justified, but we don't recognize that part of what we're doing is we are trying to destroy something in ourselves and putting it onto someone else and making them the representative of that or the definition of that and the epitome of that and then feeling it some way, okay, I'm getting rid of that part of myself. We don't really see that. Or as a way of distancing ourselves so much from it, I'm so not that, that look how mad at I, I am at someone who is that or who might be that. So um, we're seeing a lot of that happening and playing out with what is currently going on. And the, the first words I started with were, I don't know. And I can't say I have a, uh, I know a solution. Um, I do, my heart breaks seeing um, the lives that are lost, not just the lives that are lost, the children's lives that are lost, but also children who are injured or who have to witness this type of pain and destruction and violence and the, the fear and trauma that they are uh, undoubtedly experiencing. And so, of course, um, sometimes these conversations always have to start with condemning Hamas's actions, of course, absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, I, I don't think you can say it was the Israel's fault that they did these things. Of course, there's complications in understanding the history of it, but to say that this is in any way justified, you can never say it is justified or acceptable. Um, I also have concerns of the, the lives that are being lost in Gaza, and particularly um, the innocent lives. And I know that even mentioning ceasefire to many can seem like it's anti-Israel. Uh, for me, it's coming from a purely humanitarian um, place and recognizing that, in my opinion, again, I can't say I know, but I don't know if killing is going to get us to a place that solves this situation. It is going to be very complex. It's going to be um, take a lot of time. There's no way to get to peace immediately. Even a ceasefire is usually a temporary thing. That's even why it's called that. It's not a resolution or it's not peace. It's that stop the fighting, at least for some time. But if we can find some way to have a ceasefire that would minimize the civilian casualties and the innocent lives that are lost. Again, I don't know exactly how that would happen, but seeing that some people who have um, some awareness of the humanitarian possibilities, asking for a ceasefire makes me feel more likely that that can be helpful in that regard. And as far as a long-term solution, of course, I don't have one, but um, I do think that it's only going to happen 
through some level of understanding, mutual understanding. Uh, of course, if someone's mindset is that you should not be alive or your group should not be alive, you can't really have a conversation with that element of, of individuals or people who are thinking in that way. But I don't think that's the majority of, of people um, in this region feeling that way, thinking that way. And my concern would be that by having these types of protracted um, uh, fighting military actions taking place, it only contributes to more hate of both sides and more disunity and more discord and more distance that then has to be overcome to get to peace. If you um, already don't like each other and then people are being killed and, and raped or kidnapped, of course, it's not going to lead to those sides feeling more likely to go towards peace. And future generations will also be dealing with the trauma and the loss of life and the loss of everything else that comes with war and conflict that is going to make them more likely to go towards hating the other side or less likely to go towards peace. So, um, you know, these are very complex scenarios, situations. I don't think anyone can give a simple solution to this because a complicated situation will need a complicated solution that will have many facets, take many parts. I just think that we are hopefully going to find a way towards peace that I don't think will ever come from killing all the people that you disagree with or you think disagree with you. Um, and so I hope we will move towards that someday and someday soon because lives are being lost on a daily basis. Uh, just some thoughts. Again, I don't know. I don't have the answers. I don't know what we're going to do. I do hope each one of us can be aware of as small of a part as we can play to contribute more towards peace, um, more towards unity, away from hating people, hating sides, blaming everything on one person or one group, and definitely not taking out on individuals of that group who are outside of uh, the people who are making decisions and are in power. And so let's be against anti-Semitism, against Islamophobia, against hating any person or individual for belonging to some group or any group. Um, and think of yourself as a person of peace or someone who's working towards peace, even in whatever small actions you can take, including what you do and don't post on social media. All right, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Thanks for calling. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I have a question for my daughter. Um, unfortunately, she was diagnosed with bipolar uh, disorder uh, just a few years ago. And how and, old is she? Um, I'm sorry. How old is she now? Uh, she's 23. 23, okay. And, um, I mean, during school, there was just uh, sometimes a comment from her teacher that she was talkative, um, but nothing else, no major issues. And um, when she did her undergrad, um, she was also not, <clears throat> she was diagnosed uh, during the late part of uh, her undergrad. Uh, she was a very good student. She finished engineering uh, degree with very good uh, GPA. 
and then currently she's in medical school in the second year. Uh, she's doing very well with her studies, and uh, she actually is a very good student. But I do have a concern um, about whether the stress of medical school uh, would cause more breakdown um, in her uh, mental uh, condition and also about dating. Uh, she was asking me maybe it's better if she dates a bipolar person and I heard from Dr. Farhan Holokui that that was not a good idea. I mean, it wasn't specifically directed to me, but I heard it in one of the shows. And um, I just have concerns whether maybe she should have just gone to postgraduate engineering and not <clears throat> in the medical profession because you also have to do residency and everything. But she has been taking her medications and uh, she hasn't had any, any major issues other okay. than... Uh, some insomnia here and there when she gets stressed for her exam. Mm -hmm. um, so you have a family of physicians. I mean, I myself am a physician, and uh, she has also other family members okay. that are physicians. But we are very concerned about that. Yeah. So I think you had two concerns. Before I get to them, just a few more questions. Do you know if she was diagnosed with bipolar one or bipolar two disorder? Uh, <clears throat> uh, actually, that was also questionable. Like, she went to another psychiatrist and um, when she went in college, and they wanted to take her off the medication, which we didn't agree. Uh, we were, um, it was the milder kind, I know. Uh, okay. It was. Um, so, the milder, I, yeah. I, yeah, so usually yeah, the milder was, one is bipolar. It wasn't two. with this kid, so. Uh, she doesn't have schizoid features or anything like that. Or or psychotic <laughs> features? Is that? Uh, no major psychotics. Yeah. Although I did get very concerned sometimes when uh, she had when again when she was studying very hard for the entrance uh, exam to medical school, mm -hmm. uh, she was extremely stressed. And uh, at that time, she said that she thought she saw something, but. It was very brief, and it was never uh, repeated, mm -hmm. and so after that, there hasn't been anything. Okay. Yeah, just to clarify that, so bipolar, uh, mm -hmm. there's bipolar 2 and bipolar 1, not just for you, just anyone listening. Mm -hmm. So bipolar 2 is, is um, more mild in the sense that the individual, when we look at bipolar, there's the manic episodes and the depressive episodes, but someone who has bipolar 2 um, doesn't have full manic episodes. They have what we call hypomanic episodes, which are not as severe. And if, for example, there is psychosis, that is by definition going to be manic or give someone bipolar 1 diagnosis usually. And as is always the case with any kind of diagnosis, these aren't some kinds of very clear black and white things that are very something that's real uh, in the sense that you know, it's going to be clearly one or the other. Sometimes it's somewhere in between, but there is this di distinction that, that usually is made. Okay, so you mentioned she's on uh, a medication or medications. I don't know if it, sometimes it's often more than one, uh, and it's been fairly uh, stable. She's currently on, uh, on lithium, uh -huh. and uh, <clears throat> she has certainly seen a very experienced psychiatrist. Uh, but then when she went to college and uh, she had to go to a different town, uh, and then there was uh, when the visit she had with the new psychiatrist there, uh, they wanted to take, I mean, that was 
um, you know, a one-time visit, and they wanted to take her off to try and see what happens, and we got very scared, and we told her not to. And then okay. she went um, <clears throat> to a um, more of the more established uh, psychiatrist okay. went to a psychiatric clinic there in the university, and they continued on the treatment. And, and by the way, I'm getting a good amount of static, and your voice is coming a little bit faint. If there's any way you can speak up, we might be able to bring the levels down. Um, if you can speak a little bit louder. Better? It's about the same, but if you could speak... I think if you speak mm -hmm. louder than I th here in the studio, you might be able to bring the, the levels down which might make less static. Okay. It got a little bit better, mm -hmm. so let's hope it stays that the static is less now. Okay. And so herself, does she... Oh, the static is back. I'm not sure what's happening here. But anyway, did she? does she herself feel comfortable or agree with the diagnosis, your daughter? Like, she feels like it fits? Yeah, she is comfortable. Okay. Um, I mean, we know that uh, she does get some close to manic... Uh, not full episodes, but mm -hmm. when she was untreated, um, she was getting close to those episodes. Okay. Okay. If, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, very important with any kind of treatment. I mean, she's also an adult, so um, that the individual feels good about the diagnosis or feels by good, I mean, can, accepts it. And the treatment, especially for bipolar disorder, often the medication, something like lithium can be very helpful, but uh, it can also have lots of side effects and has to be monitored closely, usually to make sure we don't approach toxicity levels and things of that sort. It could be not the easiest medication to be on. And so because of that, sometimes bipolar disorder is considered a diagnosis where um, patients or clients will not stick to the, the re medication regimen. So you want to make sure they are on board with it so that makes it more likely they will continue to stay on on the treatment. So going back, I think there was two questions. One was about dating and the other was about medical school. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Okay. So um, the dating one, uh, as a general, I'm definitely not against her dating in general, but the, um, you know, when she said the, maybe I should date someone who has bipolar, I'm not sure what she, what her thinking was. The first thought that comes to my mind is sometimes we want someone, in general, we want someone who understands us and we feel like who gets us and it could feel like, well, if they don't have bipolar, they won't quite get me or they will maybe judge me or they won't be okay with mm -hmm. the things I go through. So I it, think it that's be, the concern yeah. uh, that she has. Also, the other question I had, when and during the dating, or she has, when during the dating um, process she should disclose that mm -hmm. because that's the private information, sure. uh, especially if somebody is in the same school. Uh, I mean, she obviously there is still stigma in the society and... I have heard from my friends also themselves that this is, uh, I mean, not particularly in this case, but in general, wait, when they talk, uh, there is and this is uh, there is a stigma in the society, especially sure. in the Iranian society. And uh, when down, what what level down the dating should she, should she disclose? Yeah. This? Should should it be disclosed to the family of the person she's dating? There's just all these questions, but I don't know the answer. Yeah, it's tough. And I mean, to, to be honest with you, I don't, there's not some clear, I can tell you like the fifth date or the, you know, this date, but it, it is something to consider because on one hand it's private. Um, unfortunately, there is still a stigma. I don't think, you know, unfortunately, fortunately it's getting better, but it's still there. And in different communities, it can be more than others. So I can get that. My, my sense is once it becomes like someone that you want to be committed to, like let's say you're going to be exclusive or getting more serious, 
um, at a an early level, not down the line. It, it could be important to to share that as a you know it's part of getting to know each other, and it's definitely something that I think the partner should know. Um, but uh, you know it's not something on a first date, for example, I think needs to be brought up. But once someone is getting a little bit more to the point where they're deciding to to commit to each other at some even the basic level of being exclusively dating, I, I think it could be important. And then as far as telling the family, well, that's a conversation I think between her and whoever she's dating too. That like you know, how much do they need to know, or when do they need to know that about her? Um, and I don't even know how much it impacts her, or impacts her life, and a kind of a daily or weekly, monthly type of experience, or if it's just something that's there as a potential risk or concern, or something that she has to monitor. So, I'm I'm uh, I, I'm in the f- thinking of you know when it gets to that point that you want to be more connected and serious it can be important to bring it up sometimes she might feel comfortable bringing it up sooner it is a you know she has to feel comfortable to bring it up whenever that is um but sometimes she might feel like the person themselves is opening up or being vulnerable some things and it could feel okay to bring it up earlier and of course sharing then how what that experience is like for her you know someone hears bipolar for a lot of people it does bring up because of misunderstandings um, and limited knowledge of just this person who's going to be so unstable and so all over the place and like impossible to be with when that's not the case. You know, there's people in all professions, walks of life that are um, have bipolar disorder and if they, they manage it, they, they live quite fine and it could be okay. Um, as far as dating someone who's bipolar, as I said, I can get that sense of I want someone who gets me and then, yeah, if they already have it, it makes this part of telling someone not even an issue because we both have it and we can you know share that so i wouldn't say definitely not but i hope she doesn't at all feel limited to that um and you know as is the case with anyone we can only we should only be with someone who we feel gets us understands us accepts us how we are and you know this is part of who she is definitely not all of who she is just one aspect um of who she is and her Mm -hmm. experience that they of course want to be familiar with and understand but uh, would have to accept so of course, me and you are talking here, and the most important pe- person when it comes to this is herself and, you know, who she'd like to date. As I said, I wouldn't want her to feel limited to that. I don't know if, if mm-hmm. you know, they have bipolar. It would def- definitely be a bad thing either if it's in her her way of being fairly managed and, you know, monitored in that way. I, I think that that's okay. Um, moving to your other question, I, you know, yeah, when we look at bipolar disorder, really anything we're going through, but especially something like bipolar disorder, for example, sleep is very important, keeping that as mm-hmm. um, as regular and standard as possible because uh, having bad sleep can unfortunately trigger a manic or, you know, mood mm-hmm. type of changes. So, and that can be tough with medical school where, yeah, there's going to be, I mean, you know, lots of hours of studying and it, definitely the work rate is going to be in a way that she likely has to, might have times where she has to deprive herself of sleep at temporarily or at some time. Now, I wouldn't say she shouldn't go into that field if it's what she wants to study and she's there and she's doing all right. Um, you know, again, it's her her choice. And I, there's many people who have bipolar disorder and went through medical school and became doctors. So I definitely would not say she can't do it. You know, this is something that um, it seems like she is taking seriously and, you know, as a family, you're taking seriously to monitor and be on top of. Um, but I, I wouldn't uh, my my sense of what you're telling me, especially bipolar two, even if it was bipolar one, um, you know, it seems fairly monitored in the sense that limiting her life 
in those ways w wouldn't make sense to me or be necessary. Mm -hmm. And um, as far as in the future, um, are those okay to have children or they should not because of the genetics? Um, yeah, obviously. I mean, you know, this is a, yeah, this question comes up too and... You know, when we say genetics, it's not like some uh, bipolar has a fairly higher loading, my, my understanding of that. Um, I still would not preclude her from having children based on that. I think it's always important you can do some genetic testing or, you know, especially with your partner and, and seeing what's there and what's at risk. But um, my sense that she should not have children, I, I would not make that kind of statement. That's uh, my personal opinion. I don't see anything that would make it clear that um, she should not go ahead and have children. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, I just checked with her, and she said that it was a bipolar too. Okay. Yeah. So that's mm -hmm. the, the the less severe of the two. Doesn't mean mm -hmm. you know doesn't need to still be monitored. And every person could be different in how they experience it, how quickly they might cycle and things that they go through. So, and it can be tough. It's only been a few years finding the right medication. Maybe she already has found the right balance. Many people with bipolar have a mm -hmm. tough time at the beginning finding the right medications that work. Usually a mood stabilizer, something like lithium um, is part of the, mm -hmm. the cocktail of things they might take. But yeah, somebody's finding also an antidepressant to balance that out can be um, a challenge. So I hope she's finding um, you know, that right balance for her. It seems from what you're telling me, she's doing all right with it. So, um, and she's on top of it. Initially, there was a period when uh, she was uh, younger, uh, when she was in the early years of college, uh, she wasn't always compliant or she was mm -hmm. forget. But now she's taking it very seriously and um, she keeps her appointments and she's compliant with her treatment. Oh, that's good. Yeah, as I mentioned, um, yeah, people sometimes even, you know, if I, when you describe the symptoms of mania, it sounds almost, it sounds really good, like lack of a need for sleep, inflated sense of mm -hmm. self, uh, positive, you know, mood. It just, and at, at the beginning, it actually can feel good, but then usually becomes kind of this too much. And especially for people around you, it can be even harder, but it gets overwhelming and doesn't feel good. But those initial parts of it, a lot of people will describe it feels good. And so they don't like the medication taking that away or they feel like it blunts them in certain ways so it, it is and as i mentioned the side effects at times for things like lithium can be uh, considerable so that you know they don't want to be on them so it, that's that's a, something really important for the individual to find what works for them and hopefully you know i'm glad she's taking it seriously as far as staying on top of it mm -hmm. um you know initially yeah, maybe she was having a hard time accepting it or you know going through that process but if she finds a balance of medications at work, you know, that that's great. And so, you know, it's something to... The only concern we had was uh, the stress of exams because I yeah. know when uh, she gets close to the exams, um, she gets very sleepless and I was afraid of a, of a breakdown. Yeah. I yeah, I mean, it's, it's something we have to... Um, you know, she obviously we tell any student, oh, make sure you study in advance and so you don't have to, you know, s pull all-nighters. And with medical school, it's likely going to be challenging even when you plan ahead and study ahead. But, yeah, it's going to be even more important in her case to really be aware that the typical, well, I'll just sleep two hours a night before the test 
is riskier for her than it's going to be for most of her classmates, you know, and she might have to mm -hmm. accept that that's, mm -hmm. that's the, the, the harsh reality of it. So, you know, it's, she can still experience a life of stress and she will. Um, so I wouldn't mm -hmm. say again, like she should just switch careers completely and, and not study medicine if she's staying mm -hmm. on top of it and, you know, keeping her routines and doing her, not just like self-care as in like getting a massage, those things, but exercising, all the things that will keep her more likely to stay balanced. It, you know, it seems like mm -hmm. she'll be okay. I can understand your concern. Um, but, you know, we're going to have to, I think at some point, let her figure it out and, and see what she can do. And there might be some breakdowns or things along the way. I'm hoping there isn't, but it can happen. Uh, you know, just that doesn't mean that even if I, you told me that happened once that I would say she has to drop out of school or change careers still it's possible for her to, to go through that mm -hmm. uh, yeah I have colleagues uh, with bipolar and, yeah um, they're, they're very functional and mm -hmm. they've been um, working as physicians for almost 30 years now and um, they're they're taking their treatments and they're, and they're functioning very well yeah, I've known psychiatrists, even with bipolar disorder, doctors, psychologists. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not something that, as I said, would preclude her, I'd say, from going to medical school and being a physician. Mm -hmm. And uh, last question, is that uh, she wanted to be a psychiatrist, but um, I wasn't sure, is that going to be making her more prone uh, to be stressed or become depressed or affected by other people's well I mean you're uh, talking to someone in the mental <laughs> you're talking to someone in the mental health field myself but yeah so I mean there is you know that's something well I would want her to it's the same thing we you know you'll ask a therapist it's like making sure are you going into it to kind of figure out yourself or what happened to you or is it really something that you're passionate about enjoy and want to do and she says she wants to help people <laughs> okay yeah and likely going to medical school that was her desire uh, overall um so you know it's something to reflect on and, and there's different you know maybe I, I think in general being in a psychiatric hospital is a very stressful place to be but mm -hmm. working in private practice you know it still can be stressful but can be less so so you know it's something she'd have to consider mm -hmm how she balances that and I also don't want to just make it like she can't handle stress people as you said you have colleagues mm -hmm. that likely handle lots of stress and they have bipolar disorder and mm -hmm. they can manage quite fine so mm -hmm. I, I also there I don't have the sense of no she definitely should not go into it anyone that wants to go mm -hmm. into mental health or any field I always want to know what's your intention really going into it deeper within yourself mm -hmm. and making sure it's you know mm -hmm. for the the right types of reasons so that's just the general thing that she can reflect mm -hmm. on but I wouldn't say I would say she should not go into it Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you sure. so much. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. And um, again, um, thank you uh, so much for providing all this help to the Iranian uh, community. Oh, thank it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for calling and wishing the best for your family and for your daughter. Thank you. All right. Thank Have you. You too. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In this segment, I wanted to talk about um, one aspect of communication, especially it could be really in any type of relationship, but commonly what I see with parents and their teenagers and parents generally wanting uh, to know more about what their teenagers are doing, what are they up to, being closer with them, and, and teenagers uh, at times pushing back, pushing them away, and then this can lead to conflict because of that, uh, this push and pull. 
and also concern from the parents who uh, feel that they are getting more distant from their child and also are concerned about their child because uh, as they're entering adolescence, they can be now exposed to things that might feel riskier from dating, sex, to drugs, and other types of activities. And now at this time when their child is in entering into the realm of more risky behaviors or the possibility of risky behaviors, they feel like they know even less, and that can be concerning. So one thing to keep in mind is this is a, a challenge for a lot of parents is that in adolescence, we expect to see uh, a change in how children are relating to people around them specifically they are in these years going to go more towards their peers and less away from adults especially parents so this is just something we developmentally expect to see even at some level can say it's healthy to see that the your children are going to um, move more towards their peers their approval what they think and you know this is like the the kind of typical teenage rebellion and angst of like oh the adults don't know what they're talking about they're stupid they have no idea uh, about anything and you know they, they start to care less about what adults tend to think especially their parents and so this part of it can be very hard for parents because you know they'll say oh when he was younger or she was younger we would go to movies or they couldn't wait to spend time with me now they're in those teenagers and like the last thing they want to do is spend time with me and it could feel tough it can feel like a a rejection and as a parent you have to be ready for this type of a a, a rejection even if it's subtle sometimes it might feel more drastic that you're you likely experience from your children as they enter these years and again it's something that we uh have to expect and think that it's actually healthy they they are supposed to be going more towards their peers not completely that uh, doesn't mean they have to lose you completely but that's something that they will go through and experience and also in this time not only are they more feeling um, closer to their peers thinking about what they think and their approval but they're creating more of an identity and a private life so maybe before they were telling you everything that happened about you know school and friends and this happened and physically what they're feeling but at this age they're going through different things and they're starting to form more of a sense of identity that's gonna make it likely that they will be keeping more things from you and that's okay and so we have to accept that just because they're keeping things from us doesn't mean that what we don't know is bad and it doesn't mean that them keeping things from us itself is bad it's part of this natural sense of them developing more of a sense of self that is independent from us uh, we sometimes talk about in the you know when kids turn two or three and they learn that word no that this can be really tough for parents and frustrating and makes life more challenging uh, and often we can see and feel that the child is not just saying no because they actually want to say no but it's a way of saying i'm not you so i'm not just agreeing with you or seeing things the same way as you or believing what you believe or wanting what you want I am someone different so no and sometimes even they say no and do the thing you're asking or want the same thing and go towards it but there's this way of establishing who I am as being independent from you and so this is important we want the child to get that sense and that sense of self and that sense of I am not you I am my own person and then we see a a, a stronger sense of this when they enter the teenage years of I am not you and really 
they're not sure what they are at that stage, just like when we're saying they're two or three and they're saying no, and they might still agree with what you're saying. Here, the same feeling might be there. It's not this clear sense of, I know what I am, and it's not you. It's that, no, I'm not just going to accept you and and be who you are and what you are. I'm going to find who I am. And this is, you know, maybe if you ask a teenager, they might not put it that way. It's probably happening at some level unconsciously or automatically or just an experience, but that's the feeling that they will be giving you is that, no, I'm I'm not you. And so even, you know, we see them experimenting with different things, you know, maybe coloring their hair, dressing differently, going through these uh, different phases or things like that they, they try out because they're trying to figure out who I am. But in figuring out who I am, I can't be attached to you. I can't just be stuck to the people around me and just be just like them. And so, whereas a few years ago, they maybe seemed like they were enjoying that, wanting to be just like you or do things with you and like the things that you like. Now it's like, oh, the music you like is annoying. And, you know, the shows you want to watch are stupid and whatever else you say, the jokes you're saying are not funny anymore. And, you know, something we see a lot with children of immigrants, they're going to start making fun of your accent and, you know, the way you talk and maybe the language you speak. If you have a a different language, let's say Persian, if you're Iranian, that's, you know, stupid and they don't want to speak in that language. All in this sense of trying to figure out who am I, who who am I, then who do I want to be? And actually, since I brought up culture, we see this uh, similar, uh, you know, theme or parallel process when it's when we look at culture, where when the kids are younger, they are, you know, they very much will like their usually the culture of their family the culture of their home. So again, let's use a Iranian family in an American uh, in America, they'll be liking the Persian culture, the music, and they'll they'll dance with you and listen to the the songs and try to even sing the songs and have a good time with it. And then when they enter adolescence, it could happen at different times, you'll see a rejection of that. Sometimes even earlier because they see that uh, already at school, let's say, uh, those are not the things, the language and the the music tastes and all those things that make uh, most of their time up, the people that they're spending most of their time. But especially, we often will see this in adolescence, this rejection. Oh, it's like this stupid music and the stupid, even the food maybe. So, you know, you're making this delicious warm sabzi, you know, stew, and they're saying, no, I want chicken nuggets or some kind of like, you know, very regular plain food that's American. And it seems like, how could you eat that over this? But it's because they're, you know, going towards this American culture. And again, this is... Uh, partially healthy too that if your child really wants to make it and, and adapt to this world that they're in this country that they're in they need to go more towards that american culture and i see a lot of times parents will have a hard time with this that i'm losing my child because you know it's not just um they're going away from the culture they're going away from me because this is part of me and more strongly who i am and so this is part of that process of them individuating finding out who they are, differentiating themselves from you that we have to be ready for. And so often you see Persian parents, I've seen in all cultures, but in Iranian parents, they're resisting this, um, this pushing back and they are, no, no, you have to listen to this music or listen to how nice this song is or listen to this poetry and how deep it is. And he's one of the most famous poets of the world. And we're, we try to push and impose on them the culture because we're afraid they're going to lose it now often what you find is that in these adolescent years and this figuring out who i am they might reject that that culture of their parents and their family 
but they often will come back to it uh, in young adulthood or you know let's say early 20s they might be more likely to come back to it at that point and even reconnect to it i even remember going through something like that personally i don't remember like hating or rejecting and actually my own experience of this is now that i'm thinking of it kind of a unique one because around the age of 13 in these early uh, adolescent years i moved to a school that was heavily iranian maybe 30 percent of the students were iranian so my school life now actually was being surrounded by lots of people that were from the culture of my family rather than just like the american culture so um, now that I'm thinking about it, I had a, kind of a unique experience with that, and I was learning Farsi from uh, or Persian from classmates, and even the non-Persian <laughs> uh, students knew some of, especially the not so good words um, in in Persian. So that that itself was an interesting and unique experience. Which generally, what you see is that a a child will go away from that culture, but they might come back. And I, as much as I went through that, still I feel as I got older. I started to embrace and come back towards the beauty of Iranian and Persian culture and and seeing the good of it and connecting it in a way that I had to go through my process to get there. And so I say that, so don't think as a parent, well, I have to keep forcing it and pushing on my children to love the culture, love the language, love the music, you know, all the aspects of the culture or else they're going to lose it. Often, as is the case, if we push something on someone too much, they push it back and they reject it and they won't want to come back to it. But if you allow them this process of probably going away, but likely coming back if and when they want to, they're more likely to want to embrace that down the line than if we try to force it on them. So if we recognize this is a natural part of their development, that they might move away from some aspects of the culture and move away from us, which is part of that process, um, it could lead to less conflict in this natural type of process and development that your child will likely go through. It can be difficult, it can feel scary to have this sense that my child is going away from me, but if we recognize it as a natural part of their development, we'll be less likely to interfere with it and allow them to become their own person, figure out who that is, what that is, and see how and when and what degree they want to come back towards us. Now, so that was just some thoughts on adolescence development. Also, uh, you know, we talked about the cultural dynamics and the ways that they might move away from that culture of their families, but then come back to it later on. But in the next segment, I want to talk about Uh, certain aspects of communication. So when your child is now telling you less and sometimes parents wonder, well, how do I, how do I get to them? They don't tell me anything anymore. And, you know, how can I connect with them? So some thoughts on what happens when your child puts a wall up and what we can do uh, when that does happen. So let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the last segment, I was talking about how some of the developmental aspects of your child as they enter teenage years, how they will likely move away from parents and more more towards their peers, both in time spent and openness and also whose opinions they're caring about more and whose approval and validation they want more. And so um, they are telling you less, and this can be tough for parents who, as I mentioned now, feel that their children are entering a stage where more risky things or things that can have more consequences are possible and now they know even less about what they're doing, who their friends are, uh, you know, 
all the things that are going on in their day-to-day life, and that can be a bit scary for them. And so the way you can feel for a lot of parents is they've put a wall up. You know, my child has a wall up between me and them. And this part is going to be true with anyone. When someone puts a wall up, for many people, especially many parents, the thought is, well, I have to break down that wall. I'm going to, you know, whether it's asking so many questions, interrogating, doing my own investigations, sometimes even trying to check their phone or their uh, social media or, or somehow just breaking them down. And the advice I would give there is that when someone puts up a wall, you're not going to get to them by breaking the wall down. You're going to get to them by connecting to them so that they open a door and let you in. So if they have a wall up and you try to break it down, you're likely just going to um, not get to them and hurt your relationship with them more than anything. And you're not going to get to even where it is that you want. But if you try to connect with them or maintain that connection, you're more likely to have them let you in by opening a door in that wall. So that now you're you're inside or you can at least be temporarily there and connect with them. And that's really what it's like as they enter this phase of life and they're creating more of their own sense of identity and who they are. They're putting a, a wall up and at some level there's a healthiness there, something healthy about having your own sense of self and a boundary between yourself and your parents. They need to have that. And so once they've put that up, we have to recognize that we're not going to break it down, tear it down, but we're going to have to let them or want them to get to the point where they will want to let us in to connect with them. So often what I see parents do is that because they try to break down these walls, they actually don't even get the information they want, or they might get some pieces of it. But really what they do a lot of is they start to destroy and damage the relationship between themselves and their child. And some, a few different ways that they do this. One is, as I mentioned, the interrogating. So, okay, if they're not telling me a lot, maybe if I ask enough questions or the right questions or almost, you know, put them on the spot, then I'm going to get the information I'm looking for. So parents will be asking all sorts of questions, different things. Who's this? Who's your friend? Who are their parents? What did they do? And you, one might not get even the truth or you might not get any answers and your child is less likely to want to talk with you. Um, or related to that, there's a way of, you know, parents will just give advice. It seems like it's random advice, but it's, you know, directed towards them. You know, uh, it's really important to, to think about what you put in your body because, you know, alcohol really hurts you and it can be really bad for you. And just just saying that is a, just out of nowhere, but really it's their way of saying, I hope you're not drinking or are you drinking? Tell me what you're doing and make sure you don't do that thing. And so when we interrogate our children or if our children feel like we're being they're being interrogated or every time they talk it's about trying to figure out and and do some detective work about what's going on in their life they're going to tell us a lot less and even not even want to talk to us engage in conversation just imagine if every time you talk to someone it seemed like they were trying to get some information out of you or figure out what was going on you'd be much less likely to want to communicate with them or talk to them and so this is something you see that the child pulls back and the parent says, oh, they don't tell me anything. And unfortunately, what can then happen is the the parent in their desperation, well, now I have even less time to talk to my kid. They feel like each conversation, they got to try to pull even more out of them. Okay, well, I only have 
you know, the eight minutes when I pick him up from school and take him home. So in those eight minutes, I have to try to get all my questions in or get my information out of him. And that that's not going to work. It's just going to make them even less likely to want to talk to you because every time they talk to you, it feels like a stressful situation or a situation where they're either in trouble or about to get in trouble or about to share something that you don't like. And so they're going to tell you even less. So when we try to break down the walls, usually all that happens is the person is going to build an even higher wall, thicker wall between us and them. That's not that we're going to get to them. So the interrogation and the playing detective doesn't doesn't work. You know, another way I see the playing detectives, for example, you know, a parent is worried their kid is smoking weed or smoking cigarettes. And every time they see their kid, and I've, I've seen this many times, the, the kids will tell me this teenagers that the sense they get is the mom is hugging them or the dad is hugging them, but not because they want to hug them, but they're trying to smell them to see if they can smell, you know, cigarettes or weed or something. So the, the hug lingers a little bit longer or they put their, you know, their head in their hair to see if they can smell something or the way they just look at them, they can tell, oh, you know, my mom was looking in my eyes or my dad was looking at my eyes to see you know, if I was high or if I smoked and my eyes were red. And so the way they feel is that they're not being looked at as a person. They're just being looked at as, are you doing this thing or not? And, you know, I'm just, my whole role now as your parent is monitoring you and checking what you're doing. And usually you won't find out based on those things. And maybe you do, but you're going to make your child further and further away from you. That wall is going to get thicker and higher that they're just not going to feel comfortable sharing with you. And now they maybe don't want to even see you. So they'll just stay in their room or try to sneak into their room and not talk to you because they think all you're trying to do is figure figure out, are you doing this thing, this thing that I don't think you should be doing. So when we play detective or even play kind of like this police officer role with our kids, they're going to be more likely to go away from us. You're not going to get more from them. Now, I'll make a little side note here. This doesn't mean that your child can do anything they want and that everything they do is okay and you never can set boundaries. That That's not true. You can have boundaries. I would always encourage you to make the boundaries with your child, even when they're little at a very young age, show them that their input matters and that they have a say in things. And also we know that if someone helps make the boundaries and the rules, they're more likely to follow them than if you just tell them, hey, your bedtime is 8 p.m. and you better be in bed at 8 if you have a conversation with your very young child, what time do you think is good to sleep? Okay, this time, what do you, okay, so if we do this and starting 7.30, we have to get ready. What do you think about that? Then they feel like, oh, this is part of my plan, part of what I'm contributing to. And I have some control and uh, power here rather than I'm just being told what to do. And we create a power dynamic or struggle where they're going to try to resist and, and fight against that, even if sometimes they don't care. You've probably seen this before. You make a rule. Sometimes the kid doesn't even care about what they're doing. You say you can only play 30 minutes of video games. They're going to try to sneak in some extra minutes just to go against your rule uh, to show you that you're not controlling them. And we get stuck in this power struggle, which in, in which case no one wins. So when we do the detective work or we try to interrogate, we, we don't get anywhere. Uh, we're not going to get there. And if we try to break down by forcing them to talk to us, or if you don't talk to me, I won't take care of you or support you. That's not going to work either. And so when our, our kids feel like we are against them, or we're just there to play kind of like the police and catch them and doing bad things, it's going to make them tell us less. And then when they do, they're going to be defensive. And something that I see happen in a lot of families is that 
because there's this dynamic of I'm here to catch you if you do something wrong. And it's not necessarily that that's really what the parents think. It's just because they're so worried, that's how they're operating. And that becomes the only thing they worry about is what if my kid is going towards something bad? I have to make sure they're not doing that. But because the dynamic to the child feels like you're just the police trying to make sure I don't do something or catch me in the act or even catch me in not being okay, uh, what I see happen is that even when the children might need some support and might want to go to their parents, they won't because that they know that they know their parents are so ready to jump on them for doing something or that's the feeling they have. So if they're struggling with something, they won't tell them. So if your child has a sense that, you know, if I drink alcohol, my parents will be, you know, they already told me how wrong it is and bad it is, and they're going to judge me and make me feel horrible if they find themselves in a situation where they've drank alcohol or maybe they're at a party and they're not sure if they want to drink, but they don't know how to get out of it, but they think you're going to be mad that they were at that party. Now they won't feel comfortable to come to you for support. So as much as any parent I talk about will say, no matter what, I want my kid to feel like they can ask me for help or ask me to help in a situation if they're feeling stuck in any way or need a ride or need something. Um, We might not be giving our kids that feeling if they get the sense that you are almost against them or you're trying to catch them in doing these things or that you're going to judge them or punish them so harshly if they do anything along those lines. They don't feel like they have you anymore as a line of support. So another important thing is we might feel like they've put a wall up, but we have to make sure that by our actions, we don't put a wall back or make them feel like there's, you know, spikes on our wall that they can't come towards us because we're going to judge them or make them feel bad about whatever it is they're doing. If they get stuck in some position, something is going on. And inevitably, you know, teenagers like all of us, but especially in those teenagers, they're going to make mistakes. And we want to make sure we create a dynamic where they can come to us, that they feel that we are going to accept them, that we're not pushing for them to tell us everything and we're not here just to punish them or to catch them in the act but we're here to be their parents and to support them in in what they're going through and related to trying to get you know even understand what your child is going through and what's going on in their lives not that you as a parent should know everything that's happening or need to know the details of what's going on but in a, as a general rule when we try to pull things out of someone we're much more likely to get faced with resistance. So if someone wants to know, you know, let's say someone finds out you're dating someone and they ask you, how old are, who are they? And they ask these questions. You're more than likely like, uh, like, I don't want to tell you about that. You're likely to pull back, even though you're not sure why. But when we feel like someone is being intrusive, this kind of goes to the, the walls being put up. If someone feels like they're coming into our space, we're more likely to put a wall up just as a sense of self-protection, just because it feels... Um, uncomfortable, unhealthy, that someone keeps coming into our space in a way that doesn't feel good. So parents often think, well, I keep asking my child how they're doing or what's going on, or if this is happening or that's happening. And they don't, they say everything's okay or nothing, or they just don't want to even talk. We have to realize that by pulling and pulling more, that's not going to get to the place you want to get to by pulling back a bit, by not pulling from them and just giving them a little bit of space. You're more likely to have them come to you if and when they feel ready, doesn't mean they're going to come not tell you everything if you don't ask a question for two hours. But if you do pull back and overall give them the sense that you're giving them a, se- a space to be there, you now can create a possibility that they're more likely to come tell you things or actually want to know your advice. So one related to that, as I was mentioning before, if you react 
very judgmentally or with harsh punishment with anything that comes up or, you know, long lectures with anything that comes up. That's another type of punishment that might not seem like one, but it can be. You know, this very much happens that if someone says, oh, my friend did this and I did this well, and then there's a two-hour lecture about, you know, how friends do this and friends do that and all those things, well, they're less likely to come to you. But if they know that if I come to you, there could even be consequences. It doesn't mean you're going to say everything they do is great. You can have reactions to it. You can have concerns. And maybe down the line, there's conversations about, what consequences might be there or what we need to do about what's happening. But if you show them that you're willing to accept whatever they come with you and share um, with you, they're more likely to then be open with you. Okay, I can go tell my mom and dad something. And yeah, they might have some reaction to it, but overall, they'll be able to keep their calm. I won't feel attacked. I won't feel that they're going to punish me harshly or make me feel bad about myself and who I am. And they might support me, hear me out, make sure I I feel understood and then give me what I'm asking for, whether that's support or advice or, um, you know, whatever it might be, that's going to make it much more likely that they come towards you. So unfortunately, there's no magic key to break into that door. There's no way to tear that wall down when you feel that your kids have put walls up um, when it comes between you and them. But as I said, you have to work on the relationship and maintain the relationship so that it's more likely they open the door to let you in Uh, and often what we think is in our control is our kids but our kids are not in our control and what they do especially as they get older what is in your control and or at least at least 50 percent of is in your control is the relationship you have with your child and that's often what I encourage parents to focus on don't focus on you know I see oh I want them to break up with this guy or this girl or stop doing this or stop doing that and that becomes the whole focus of their relationship is controlling them or changing something in their life and very often what happens is we don't uh, change what's happening there the only thing we change is our relationship with them and making it worse you damage the relationship and you don't change whatever it is you've been hoping are uh, is the thing that they will change but if we focus on our relationship and our role as a parent which could involve guidance and support in different ways but overall it's a relationship that's something that you can control especially 100 percent of your side of things to make it better so if we establish a better relationship with them or maintain that relationship you're much more likely to have your child open the door and let you in but if you try to tear down the walls and break through them you're much more likely to have thicker walls be put up higher walls be put up and feel that you're left out in the cold when it comes to understanding your child and connecting with them all right let's go to another commercial break we'll be right back welcome back something that uh, we often recommend in relationships all relationships we see coming up in romantic relationships even more is to not expect your partner to read your mind which seems like pretty reasonable or even just obvious advice that you can't expect your partner to read your mind to know what you want what you feel things that they're doing that you don't like or things that you wish they would do that would make you feel good Uh, we we can't assume they know and we have to put that responsibility on ourselves that um, I need to inform my partner of what I'm feeling what I'm going through all those types of things now for all of us there is this desire that someone will so completely get us that we won't have to even tell them what we think or feel they'll just know and so uh, this comes from a childhood feeling and if you think about it as a baby there almost is this feeling that you're 
your parent, your caregiver, is guessing what you need. You don't even really know in a way you're crying, you don't feel good, and then they they feed you a bottle and all of a sudden you feel good, or they change your diaper and you feel good. And there is a way that it can feel like they're almost reading your mind, that they're knowing exactly what you want. Now, in that childhood state or that baby state, there's only a few things we tend to need. And so the parents have just a few different things to choose from, and they can be good even at times interpreting our cries and knowing what we need and giving us that. So there is this understandable desire for that. And not only that, when you are really attuned with someone, you will often pick up on things, even if they don't tell you, you know, you might look at your partner and realize, oh, they're kind of more fidgety than normal. So maybe they're worried or anxious. So you might ask them, are you worried? Are you anxious? Or just give them a hug and that makes them feel comforted or notice that they're more tired or notice whatever it is about them. And so there's some level where that does happen in a relationship. So it's not to say uh, it never will happen that your partner will kind of read your mind or understand what you're going through without you communicating it. And when you do have a very healthy and attuned relationship, that will happen more. So that can be good. But this still will never be an one-to-one or every single time um, your partner is going to read your mind or know what you're feeling or what you want or what you don't like. We we can't expect that. We really want to make sure we recognize that that is our responsibility, that as good as that feels to have that in general or as a idealization or in those moments when it does happen, we can't expect that to be the case. Now, for people who in childhood, you know, no one's needs are going to be met completely, but who significantly had the sense that their needs were not met or were even burdensome or that their emotions were not validated or seen as, you know, wrong or frustrating or annoying or things that they shouldn't own or that had to parentify. Um, They were parentified in that sense, had to take care of their parents emotionally. So they had to disown or disregard their feelings. They can be even more likely to have this sense of wanting their partner to read their minds. They can have this sense that one, um, and this is something to be aware of because it might seem counterintuitive because someone who's not um, sharing their wants and their needs and their feelings seems like they might feel inferior, but there's a way you can feel superior in the sense that I'm not someone who needs things. I don't ask for anything because this is something that was reinforced for you as a child, uh, whether it was explicitly stated or you just experienced it, that by not having needs or not expressing needs or feelings or wants, um, it made you good or it made the situation good or likable or lovable or you're so nice or you're so easy or you're so happy. And so there was a reinforcement of this disowning of needs. And so it could feel like this almost this badge or this, you know, this crown that you're wearing that makes you better than others that I never need anything. I never ask for anything. So if you notice that when you people ask for something, um, it irks you or it bothers you. It could be coming from the sense that you have a hard time asking for things yourself. And so you look down on that person, but it's really because they're actually expressing something you wish you could express yourself or had that possibility to express. So um, one is that sense of this is what makes me good is to not need things and to not want things, but also because of how your needs were responded to, your feelings were responded to, this feeling that if I share them with the person um, they're not going to like it. It's going to be like a burden to them or make them upset or annoyed or frustrated. So it's better. I don't 
share them. And the other hard part that can come up for people is the sense that if I share what I need, and even if the person does it, it's not going to feel as real or as genuine as if they did it themselves. So for example, if you're in a relationship and you tell your partner, oh, I really like it. I would really like it if you buy me flowers. And then that day they buy you flowers. Well, there could be the sense of, well, yeah, you bought me flowers, but it's almost like I told you to do it or I asked you specifically to do it. So it might, it won't feel as good as if the person spontaneously went and brought you flowers and that was a thing that you really wanted. Um, and so there could be the sense that by telling you what I want or what I need, I'm ruining this possibility that you can do it and make me feel that you genuinely love me or care about me by giving me what it is that I want or need. When it doesn't have to be that way, but that's the feeling that could, could come up for someone or does come up for someone in these situations. So for some people, they have a, a very hard time sharing uh, what they need, what they feel, what's going on for them. Another reason that you might do this is that another counterintuitive type of thing is that by having some resentment towards your partner, so, oh, they don't do the things I want or I like, even if you haven't told them, but still harboring this resentment for them for not giving you what you want, that resentment allows for you to create some space between you and them. And so if you're someone who in your early relationships didn't get your needs met or felt like you couldn't share your emotions, they didn't get validated, those types of experiences, you likely will have a fear of getting close, a fear of uh, emotional intimacy. And so by creating the space, by not giving the partner the chance to, to give you what you want and by allowing you to harbor some resentment towards them, it serves as a protective buffer that you don't get that close up. Oh, Look at my my partner doesn't do what I want. My partner doesn't give me what I need. Look what I'm look what I'm dealing with. Look what I'm working with. And so again, we can get this sense of a a superior a superiority. I am better than you, or I would do this for you, or I do this for other people, and you don't do what I want. Look what I'm I'm dealing with here. And of course, that's going to be a very bad place to uh, have a relationship, a bad stance to have where you're almost looking down at your partner or looking at them as inferior in some way because they're not giving you what you want, even when you're not telling them what you want. And as I was saying before, you likely will get annoyed or frustrated if they ask for things they want from you, um, which is actually quite healthy and normal and good because you're not doing the same thing and asking them. So it's almost like you're frustrated. Oh, how, how dare you ask me for something when I don't ask you for anything where actually it should be, oh, I should be learning from you. It's good that you're asking. I should be asking and telling you the same things. So it can be very tough in this sense that we want our partner to read our minds can be very powerful for some people. And it's something to ask yourself if you have this strong sense of, um, I want my partner just to know what I want. I don't want to have to ask for it. You know, and asking, of course, brings about a vulnerability of one um, being exposed, sharing something that we feel, something that either bothers us or something that we want. Uh, also, the sense that I need you. So I'm asking you for this thing. And sometimes people can feel very needy, even though in our relationships, it is very reasonable and actually healthy to have things that we request of our partners and to tell them and share that are things that we like and don't like, but there can be the sense that we're coming off needy and that can feel um, very vulnerable and not good for a person. So it can feel a lot safer for people not to share what they want and to just be perpetually unhappy in their relationship, blame either their partner or just have a 
pessimistic outlook on life and love. Oh, you know, you're never going to feel happy in a relationship. No one gives you what you want. And even what at times can happen is this resentment and these negative feelings can build up and they might just accept it and resign in this relationship or they move on to a new relationship. So often what happens in for these kinds of people is that they can, it's not that they enjoy relationships, they basically just tolerate them until the the resentment gets to be too much and they have to move on and that frustration and what's heartbreaking is that they are at times not giving a chance to the other person to potentially make things right or give them what they want and make the relationship good so you'd like um, you know more words of affirmation from your partner or for them to you feel like they are disrespecting you by something that they do but you don't share that with them and it just deteriorates the relationship um, maybe more from your end, they might not even realize what's happening. And then slowly you feel less love for them, less connected. And then you might move on to the next person where you're going to, again, hope that they're going to get everything perfectly right. Because if they don't, it's just going to bother you and make you upset and make you feel hurt and make you feel disconnected. And then slowly that love will either fade or your resentment builds to you get so angry and in a feeling of justification, you move on. You say, oh, look, you made me so unhappy or they never did the things I wanted. But this is why it's so important for us to each recognize that is my responsibility in the relationship. My partner cannot read my mind. We didn't get what we wanted in childhood, which was this sense of, our, our needs being met perfectly by our, our parents, or at least even adequately by our parents. But now I can't expect in this childlike type of fantasy and idealization that my partner now will know exactly what I want or I need from them, or will be able to read my mind and know exactly what it is that I'm looking for from them. And if we can recognize that, it can be very powerful to um, what we likely will have to do is grieve that pain and that loss of that child who wanted that and at some level deserved that as children do for the parents to be attuned and to attend to them and to uh, want to take care of their feelings and their wants and their needs and you, you likely didn't get that that child needs to grieve it but not the adult you has to now play it out in your relationships much easier said than done but it can be done in working through that pain of that child and grieving uh, their loss of not receiving the type of love and the type of uh, affection that they so dearly needed to get. And so because of that, if you can grieve that loss of them and recognize that even though they didn't get what they want, the adult you now can, and expressing that to your partner, there can be some hope for that relationship surviving or relationship even thriving and becoming stronger. Because what tends to happen is if we, in a loving way can express the things that are not feeling good in the relationship and we have a partner who lovingly responds to that i know it sounds idealized but it might not be so clean but it still can happen but they lovingly respond to try to meet those needs the relationship can be much stronger than what it would have it would have been had neither of us said anything or if you had not expressed what you wanted so a pretty standard advice of not expecting your partner to read your mind sounds very simple but if you're someone that you realize it's very hard for you to do that, it can be important for you to explore a bit deeper some of these themes that I was bringing up um, from your childhood, likely what you experienced, the feelings that you might go through, the patterns that you might go through, and realizing that you maybe are enjoying or at some level getting something from relationships not working out 
because it protects you from having to get close. But if we can overcome that fear and overcome that sense that uh, someone doesn't want to meet my needs and give them the chance to do that and give yourself the chance to have your needs, your feelings, and your wants met, then you have the potential to create uh, a beautiful relationship. But if we don't do that, if we just wait for someone to read our minds, we're going to live in, in a life of resentment, a life of unhappiness, of unsatisfaction, a, a feeling of confirmation that no one really loves me or wants to love me or to take care of me or no one sees me when it's not necessarily the case. No one can read our mind. No one can know what it is that we want and need without us telling them. And in a healthy relationship, both partners will make sure they make their effort and their responsibility to share with their partner what it is that they're feeling, what they want, what they need, what it is they don't want to see in the relationship and go from there. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Along the lines of uh, parenting advice that I was sharing before related to if your your parent your kids are putting up walls not to to break them down or uh, realize that we have to try to connect and allow them to open a door and to let us in. Uh, another parenting theme that I often discuss related to this, not really related, but to me it tends to, to co-occur, but a type of parenting where we think that our goal is to prevent our kids' pain, or I call it pain prevention parenting, where our mindset and our focus is that my role is just to eliminate or remove the pain of my child. And it relates actually to what I was saying with the, the baby, because in those uh, days when we have an infant, that is really the only thing we do is to prevent their pain or to take away their pain when it shows up. So uh, we try to keep them comfortable, keep them warm, keep them, you know, uh, fed, but then they're going to cry. And then when they cry, we try to take away that pain. And it's also a basic level of how we all interact with the world that understandably we want to go towards things that feel good and away from things that feel bad but we know that in order to live a good life we have to often go away from something that feels good to something that doesn't feel good or might even feel bad in the moment but that helps us in the long run so some kind of example like we have to study for an exam and our friends are about to go out and have fun we might have to forego that fun in the moment and do something that's not fun and doesn't feel as good in the moment for our own benefit in the long term. And so with our kids, unfortunately, what sometimes will happen is that we'll adapt this type of mindset of take away the pain when they're an infant or that own feeling we have of going away from pain and continue it throughout their childhood thinking, that's my role. If my child feels pain, take it away and that's it. Or if my child is feeling discomfort, doesn't feel good, I'm always supposed to take them away from the thing that doesn't feel good and that is very comforting as a parent too. Child is hurting, take it away. It feels like I did the right thing. And so as a parent, you feel like, well, what am I heartless to let my child suffer? And no, um, when your child is suffering, doesn't mean you just let them be. But it is realizing uh, a theme that I bring back to adults, but that we have to keep in mind with our kids is differentiating between the pain that leads to growth and the pain that leads to damage. So 
if your child, even somebody's you your two kids, you have a, a older child and a younger child, the older one is going to hit the younger one, you have to stop them. You have to prevent that pain of the, the younger kid. It's just hurting them and doesn't lead to growth. But then as your child gets older and let's say has schoolwork that they didn't do and you think I'm going to do it for them to prevent that pain, you're likely going to be interfering with pain that will lead to their growth rather than preventing a pain that leads to their damage. But if you're operating from the mindset of pain prevention parenting, then your whole focus or your whole um, justification is if it's taking away their pain, I'm doing the right thing. And so it's understandable. I can get it. You know, your child comes to you like, oh, I didn't finish this project or uh, I'm not going to get this done by tomorrow. And you see the look of worry and sadness on their face and you feel it too because you care about them. And you feel like, okay, well, what if I do the homework for them? So they go to sleep and you're finishing the homework and probably as a parent, you feel great. Look at me sacrificing my sleep, doing fourth grade homework, trying to make it look like I'm a fourth grader. So the teacher doesn't think my child didn't do it. And then your child wakes up and feels like, oh, you finished it. And they feel so good and they're smiling and they go to school and it seems like everything's really good. Disaster averted. You did a great job parenting. But we also have sent a very clear message to our child that even when you don't do the work, even when you um, should face consequences, someone is going to come in and swoop in and save you from that consequence or that bad experience and nothing bad happens. So you don't have to worry about the consequences of your actions. Someone will always be there. And so I see this a lot in in families and you know seeing a lot of iranian families this theme of you know i always make sure my kid is not hurting oh my kid didn't want to do this thing so i did it for them my, my kid got in a fight with their teacher so i went and i talked to the teacher for them and took care of it and now the teacher is going to act differently or we switched their class or we found some way to to change the situation for them and all the while preventing pain but not realizing you're also preventing growth, which as a parent, your job, of course, is to make sure your kids are safe and protected and not going through undue pain, but also it's to help them develop into the best, strongest version of themselves, self-sufficient version of themselves, uh, a version of themselves where they can feel responsible, that they can face the world and take care of themselves in this world. An analogy I use in this same realm, an extreme one, but it paints the picture is imagine a parent who's like, you know, I want my child to live so comfortably. I don't want my child to go through any kind of stress. So yes, as a baby, I'll carry my child, but even as they're getting older, I'm still going to carry them. I'm going to carry my child. Okay. They're one years old too. No, they never have to walk. I don't want them to walk. They can fall. They can get tired. I'm going to carry my child. They're three years old. You know, I, I, I even go to the gym in the morning to get stronger so that I can keep holding my child and be, look at the sacrifices that I'm making. And now my child is six and getting heavier, but I still don't, I don't let my child take a single step. I'm carrying my child everywhere that they want to go every single day, every moment. Sometimes my back does hurt. I still work out, but it's still not enough. Now they're 10 years old, 12 years old. Look at me carrying my child. My child has never walked a step in their life. What a great parent I am. And it could feel, you know, you feel the pain that you went through and it feels like a sacrifice for them. But look at what you've done to your child. You're out, now your child is unable to take care of themselves in a very basic way to even 
to even walk, to even probably have lost the muscle mass and the strength in, in their body to then take care of themselves. You've taken away so much of their, what they already had, but also their opportunity to grow and to become stronger. So just by taking away their pain, taking away a potential discomfort, doesn't mean you did a service to your child. It could, could actually have been the worst thing you could have done for your child is to take away those opportunities to grow. So your child is six years old and gets in a fight with one of their friends. You, you see your child is crying and the feeling is, I'm going to take away this pain. Let me go fix it for them. Let me go talk to the mom of the kid and let's figure it out. But really what would be the best thing you can do for your child is to encourage them to be able to go talk with that friend they had a fight with, which might feel uncomfortable, might not feel good, they might not like how it feels, but that's much better for their growth and who they're going to be, and it's a pain they can handle, rather than trying to just remove the pain. So you're interfering with that opportunity to grow. Not only do we do that, but we're also teaching our children when we go and save the day every time and try to prevent the pain, that feeling bad is intolerable, that we're going to do whatever it takes to get away from it because it's so, so bad. And so part of this is actually, as a parent, recognizing what is my own tolerance for not feeling good. And to me, it's actually, uh, I consider it a, a, its own topic that I often will talk about at length, because to me, this tolerance for feeling bad, sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll hear distress tolerance or frustration tolerance as different ways of um, conceptualizing it or putting it as a term, but the sense of how well can I tolerate feeling bad to me is one of the biggest markers of mental health, which seems paradoxical because feeling bad doesn't seem like that's the part of feeling good, but in order to live a healthy life, to have a healthy relationship with yourself, healthy relationship with others, to make good decisions for yourself, and to be able to tolerate life, we have to be able to tolerate feeling bad. That when bad feelings come, it's not some um, emergency or disaster, something that I have to get away from at all costs, but it's something that I can withstand and I can tolerate. Here there is also this distinction of, um, you know, the wisdom of the serenity prayer where changing the things I can change and accepting things I can't. So sometimes we need to take action even for ourselves. Well, I can change something that's bothering me. There's, you know, this uh, stone in my foot. I can take my shoe off, take the stone out and, and walk. I don't have to just tolerate the pain of that um, rock. I can do something about it, but sometimes it's raining and I'm outside. Well, I'm going to get wet and I, I can't go anywhere. I can just accept that I'm going to get a little bit wet and I'm going to be okay. And so a strong marker of our mental health is in general being able to tolerate feeling bad. And then if we can tolerate feeling bad, it doesn't mean we don't care if our child is feeling bad, but we can tolerate that too when need be. So if it's a pain that might actually be okay for them to experience, or if we realize we don't want to quickly just take away their pain or respond like it's an emergency, that can actually help them recognize that feeling bad, although it doesn't feel good, of course, is something okay, I can tolerate it, right? So the example I, I like is, let's say, if a child falls, and we know there's a big uh, impact of how the parent responds. If you respond like it's an emergency or crisis and you overreact, the child is more likely to think they're more hurt than they actually are. But if you can maintain a level of calm, you sometimes see kids will just get up and start playing as if nothing has happened. But let's say even the kid has fallen and does feel some pain and comes to you. 
Now, you know they don't feel good, and as someone who cares about your child so much, of course, that doesn't feel good to see them in pain. But if you can tolerate that pain, and sometimes we use words like be a container so you can hold your own feelings enough that you can also hold on to your child's feelings as they're feeling bad, you can help your child start to feel good. One, start to see that, okay, it's not so scary even if it doesn't feel good. You're showing them hope and belief that things are going to get better, which then can comfort them that even if it doesn't feel good, they're going to feel okay. And also they start to then over time internalize the sense of containing the feeling that, okay, when I feel bad, it doesn't feel good, but I can try to stay calm, try to breathe through it, try to just be patient with it, and I'll start to feel better. But unfortunately, some parents, they respond that if my child's hurt, oh my God, what can I do? Give them this, do this, distract them, buy them a new toy, do whatever it is just to make them stop feeling bad. And you're sending a very clear message to your kid that feeling bad is horrible, intolerable, scary, and we have to get away from it by any means necessary. Which means what? As they get older, they'll feel that same way. And what do we tend to turn to? Drugs, alcohol, food, other behaviors that try to take away that bad feeling because we're trying to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Those are the behaviors that might make you feel good quickly in the uh, quote-unquote in the fastest way possible but they're not the best things for you to grow through. We don't want our children to think, if I feel bad, do whatever it takes to feel good immediately. We want them to feel, oh, I feel bad. That doesn't feel good, but I'm going to be okay. All feelings come and go. No feeling lasts forever. And whatever this feeling is, I can tolerate it and know that I'm going to feel better over time. I can even learn from it. What am I feeling sad about or mad about? And that can be informative. But bad feelings are not some scary thing I have to run away from. So, of course, as a parent, you want your children to feel good. You want them to not feel pain. But if we can learn to tolerate our own pain and not feeling good and realize it doesn't have to be some scary, disastrous type of thing, it allows for us to have a more healthy relationship with our children's pain, to not respond with panic when they're feeling hurt or sad, and to also not think that we have to just avoid all the pain in their life and actually let them embrace and face the pains that are going to lead to them getting stronger then we won't practice this pain prevention parenting. The pain prevention parenting actually gets in the way of their growth and their well-being in the long term. It can feel counterintuitive to let your child feel bad at times. It's not in a way that we're indifferent or we just allow them to suffer without caring, but in a way that we know that sometimes they will have to go through pains that will help them grow. And our job isn't just to eliminate or remove all their pains, it's to help them grow and develop into the strongest, healthiest version of themselves. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. Big thank you to Farouda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farouda Lokwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Mm-hmm.